My name is TJ Smith. Uh, my wife and I have been missionaries in uh, North India since 2005. And I usually, when I come uh, and address a congregation, even speak here at PBC, the, the subject is missions. Uh, missions is where Christians gathered together, pray for, and then send out people to go somewhere that is not their home to share the gospel, to make disciples, reflecting Matthew 28, uh, Jesus Christ's command um, to go and make disciples of the nations. Missions is going and planting churches, and that's what we were doing for the first 10 years in India, uh, which we, we love and which counted a great privilege to be, um, have, have been sent there by you to do that. The last four years, we were involved with a church in uh, that the same area to start up a seminary. Uh, the seminary is called Zion Seminary because missions is raising up qualified pastoral leadership, men who are competent, who, who know the word, who love the word, who are able to shepherd uh, the flock that God gives them. It's not just here in the U.S. that we need competent pastors. It's everywhere in the world. You know, there's a, uh, there, it is said that there's a theological famine in the world, uh, a pastoral crisis, men shepherding the church but, but who don't know the word. So we're doing the last four years, and even this year, we're willing, we're, we'll be moving to Dubai. There's a seminary there uh, called the Gulf Training Center associated with a church called Redeemer Church in the middle of Dubai, and we get to partner with them to raise up men who are going to go back to the various countries that they come from, to pastor churches, to plant churches. Redeemer Church is a strange place. Uh, there's uh, people from over 60 different countries there, mainly from India and Pakistan and Iran and the Philippines. It's a, it's a very diverse place, and they're all going to have to leave there eventually. And so we get this great opportunity to go there and to, to make disciples of the nations, to raise up church leadership, and, and to send them out. Missions, church planting, making disciples, um, sending, sending pastors out. It's exciting. Uh, missions is exciting because um, worship is exciting, because Jesus Christ is worthy. It was many years ago, John Piper famously said, missions exists because worship doesn't. That is to say, there are many, many countries, many cities, there are many people groups in which there is not an established church. There are not godly believers gathered together humbly to worship the Lord Jesus. And so missions exist so that we might present Christ Jesus to the nation so that they might hear of his supremacy. And that is what you do, Placerita, when you send out men and women. That's what you do when you pray for them. You'll see their news sometimes up here or in the bulletin. And when you praise God for their work and when you intercede for them, you are participating in God's mission to the world. And it is thrilling. It's also hard work. It's, it's enduring. It takes a long time. And so I just say, keep on doing it. Keep on doing it. Since I became a member here in like 98 or 99, I've seen many missionaries, Placerid has, has raised them up and sent them out. And we get, we get to continue to do that as a congregation. You get to continue to do that as a congregation. Now, this morning, missions is not my topic. And so that's kind of like your, your first sermon, sermon part one. I don't know. Um, the, the rest of the morning, I want to I talk about a different subject, namely the subject of adoption, spiritual adoption, our sonship by, of, the, of the Father. Now, I know that for many of you, when I say the word adoption or spiritual adoption, in your mind comes many images or ideas that, that come from or relate to human adoption, the convention of foster care or foster adopt or interracial adoption that's very common today in the United States. And it's, it's understandable. I mean, my, my wife and I, our family, we are a product of adoption. I, I get it. We, we love adoption. We love the image, the idea that's there. And yet, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we might think about or conceive of our spiritual adoption, what God has done for us in adoption, as being very similar to even the same thing as we see happening often in, in North America. Or vice versa, we might think that what happens in, a, in, in adoption, uh, humanly speaking, is exactly the same thing or, or the, the, the same thing as what happens in spiritual adoption. And so, unless we see it in Scripture, we want, we want to... to Make sure these things are not exactly the same. Or if the, if, it, if the scripture speaks to it, we want to make sure that they are the same. And so open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Because we want to address and answer several questions about adoption. So I'm going to read the text. I'm going to look at the passage. 
And then we're going to talk about what does it mean to be adopted by the Father. I want you to see it and revel in it, to love it. I want you to identify even as an adopted son of God so that later today or over lunch or later in this week as you're talking to people, this image or this identity of an adopted son begins to penetrate into your mind and you love it and you embrace it. It's, it really is one of those amazing gifts that God gives us as Christians. Uh, J.I. Packer uh, famously once said, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God, the judge, justification, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father, adoption, is greater. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. So I'm going to read the passage, and we're going to talk about our adoption. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Actually, we're going to take it to verse 29 of chapter 3, the last verse of chapter 3. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we say, Abba, Father, the one who knows us, who sees us, who loves us through Jesus, please come, open our eyes that we may see the glory of your adoptive love. We want to know you and see you as you present yourself in Scripture. And so come and teach us, Father. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. You know, this word adoption that I read is huiathesia. It's a great word in Greek, right? Huios meaning son, male, not daughter, huios, and thesia, to place or to make. This word adoption, Paul uses five times in the New Testament to refer to our relationship to God or what God has done for us in making us a part of his family. Now, this word adoption was very common in the Roman world. In Paul's day, the churches to which he wrote, Galatia, church in Rome, church in Ephesians, when they saw this word adoption, they knew what it meant because almost all of the Roman empires, emperors used adoption as a convention to appoint their heir. So they all knew what adoption was. It was a, a father placing or making, usually an adult male, 14, 15, 17-year-old um, man, as his heir. And then that, that young man became, in, in, the, in the eyes of the law, his son in every way. There wasn't necessarily a love relationship between that, that adoptive father and that adopted son in the Roman world, but there was a perfect legal status granted. Now God, through the Apostle Paul, shows us that we have an adoptive relationship to God. We are in his family by this thing called adoption. And yet, and yet, we are tempted sometimes, just uh, it's normal, it's normal human to take a metaphor, a picture, an image, adoption, and to infuse into it ideas or thoughts that maybe aren't there. Or to take uh, the idea of, of human adoption as we customarily see today, and to infuse into that the ideas that we maybe see in Scripture. And so we want to disambiguate them, we want to answer them and, and ask some questions and say, what is our adoption like? So you see some questions up on the back, you'll see some some questions in your, in your notebook, and we want to answer these questions, simple, straightforward questions regarding adoption. I put them in, in terms of questions because as adoptive parents, we get, we get questions all the time. Be traveling, totally random person comes up and says, who are you, where are they from? And I'm like, hi, I'm TJ, who are you, and why are you asking about my family? It's kind of random questions, right? Questions are good. They kind of uh, bring us right to the point. And so question number one, who is doing this adoption? 
who is performing this adoption? Look back at Galatians 4, verse 4. We see the answer. It's pretty straightforward. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. God the Father sent his Son. The Father is the one who is adopting. And you can see it there. The Father sends the Son, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Father is the one who initiates it. The Son is the one who brings it about, and the Spirit is the one that enlivens it. The Father is the one who drives it. The Son then comes and accomplishes it, and then the Spirit applies it to our lives. Now, you can see it there. The Trinity is involved with our adoption. This is a triune God who makes us his own. And yet the Scriptures show or point typically to the Father as the one who initiates it, who brings it about. The Father is the one who adopts us. Even that word Father, it's such a unique thing, is it not? Hindus don't typically speak of their God as Father. Muslims do not speak of their God as Father. Christians, we speak of God as? As Father. And so He is. And He is the one who does this for us. Now, for many of us, this idea of Father can sometimes um, get mixed up with maybe the image of our human Father. It's, it's very natural. Our father perhaps was stern, a dictator, distant. And so maybe some of us think of our heavenly father as stern or distant. For some of us, we think our father is like a good old boy, a buddy, a friend. And so maybe naturally we think of our heavenly father in that same way. Perhaps you think of your own failures as a father. And you think, is God like me? And yet you know what kind of... God our Father is, right? He is holy. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly loving and merciful. And so all of the ways that perhaps our human fathers uh, drew um, some kind of error or the way that they fell short or the way that we ourselves fall short, we can look to to the Lord God and we can say, Father, you are perfectly good and perfectly holy and perfectly righteous and we love you as our father because it is he who has first loved us who's who's doing this adoption who's performing it it's the father the father who sent his son there's a second question you can see there who does the father adopt who does the father adopt the the, the text here shows us who who was adopted and from what they are adopted. And this is an important thing to understand. Who were we? What were we like? Where were we from? You see, the the scriptures show that the Father adopted children of wrath, a people who had been separated from him. And even the text here shows us a little bit about who we are like and what we are like. If you you look back in chapter 3, chapter 3, 22 talks about the scripture imprisoned everything, everyone under sin, Chapter 3, 23. Now, there before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were under the law. Verse 25. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We were under a guardian, under a a guardian or a manager. In verse 3 of chapter 4, Paul says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Chapter 4, verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things which are by nature not God. The people that God adopts were under sin, under the law, enslaved to the world, enslaved to sin. That was what our condition was like, our nature, our identity. We were, in the words of Ephesians 2, children of wrath. These are the people that God looks at. The Father looks down and says, mine. And not just mine, but my child, my son, my beloved one. Now, it is in this context, when we talk about who it is that God adopts, that uh, we want to make maybe a distinction between human adoption and spiritual adoption. Because in human adoption, if you think about it, an orphan is essentially innocent. A child, a a six-month-old, a six-year-old, has done nothing to merit the circumstances of their orphanhood. They are a victim. They are innocent. 
in respects their relationship to their father or their mother. But spiritually speaking, think about it. We were essentially guilty. We had done everything to merit a relationship of separation between us and God. If you think about a human child, a human child is beautiful, gloriously made in the image of God, and yet often broken. Spiritually speaking, we had done nothing to merit this relationship to God. We, we actually were lost. We were dead in our sins. We had n- nothing to, to commend ourselves to God. Oh, look upon me. And so when God looked at you and I, and when he, when he saw us, he didn't see a beautiful and innocent three-month-old or three-year-old child as we see in human adoption. He saw a child destined for destruction, who deserved destruction. And when he saw us, he had compassion on us. He had mercy on me, and he had mercy on you. And so when he calls us his son, when he makes us his son, he is taking those sons of disobedience and making them sons of righteousness. He's taking children of wrath and making them children of of glory, of holiness. And so who is it that God adopts? God adopts children of wrath. Of people separated. From what, does he, from what does he adopt us? Or out of what? He, he adopts us out of or from judgment, wrath, separation. And this morning, this morning, if you're not an adopted son of God, what's that make you? If you're not an adopted child of God, you are still under sin and under the law. You are still separated from him because there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who have been adopted and those who have not been adopted. And so I pray, I hope this morning that you identify and revel in and know that you are an adopted son of the Almighty Father. Now, there's a third question that you see there in your your notes and that we want to answer. What does the Father's adoption accomplish? What does it accomplish? We want to talk around this and say, what does it mean for God to make you his son? What does it mean for God to make you his son? Because for the Greeks and for the Romans, there was a very specific process, very much like today. And in the United States, to adopt someone, you have to go through a whole bunch of legal wrangling, fill out like reams of paper, and do and tons of interviews, and have a, a, a home that's in a certain set way. And then when you stand before a, a judge... There has to be a certain set of legal um, precedents and signatures, and there's got to be witnesses, and there's pledges you make and promises. And after all of this is said and done, then there's a legal judgment made. This person is now the son of this person. Now, for the Greeks and the Romans, it was very clear. When the procedure was done, you know, the, this, this father, the adoptive father, is now legally responsible for this young man. And this young man is now legally the heir of this individual. That that adoptive son, his name was changed. His identity was changed. He no longer had the debts or the burdens or the obligations that his biological father had. If his bio dad was a slave and his adopted dad was free, the adopted son is now free. You even see that there in the text. You know, in uh, verse 1 there, it says, I mean, the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from the slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and manners until the date set by his father. And so you can imagine in a very large, like, plantation home with a whole bunch of kids playing and running around, a stranger walks into the room and sees a bunch of kids playing. He doesn't know who, which kid is which. He doesn't know who's the, the slave's kid and who's the master of the house's kid. They look the same. And yet, when you know the difference... This one, the master of the house, his kid is the heir of everything, owns and possesses everything. And this one, the son of the servant or the slave, owns nothing. They're penniless. And in fact, they might themselves be be moved into a position of slavery. One has everything, one has nothing. And yet Paul shows us here in the text that something changes in adoption. That through adoption, something is broken or trans- transitions. In verse 7, you see it. 
So then you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So before you and I, we were, we were in a sense spiritual slaves of sin. And yet in adoption, that relationship, to the slavery of sin is broken. And now we become sons and heirs. Heirs in God's family. We belong to him. What God accomplishes in adoption puts us not just in a legal relationship with him, which is true, it is. But we also have now a, a relationship, a familial, family relationship with him. We can know him and, and he knows us and we can love him and, and he loves us as his own son. Now, about half of you in the room should be thinking a question, maybe asking a question particularly those of you who are female, of the, of the womanly persuasion. Why only sons? Because here in the text, in almost every place in the New Testament, it is sons of God, not sons and daughters, although there is one passage that refers to it. It's a different context. We are adopted as sons, and you, women, are sons of God. Why sons? Why not daughters here? Why does God, when... when he refers to our spiritual adoption, declare you as daughters, as mothers, as, as widows, as single women, as sons. Why is that important? And for that, we have to understand that even that last phrase in verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, when Paul wrote this letter to the, to the church of Galatia, he is well aware that there are women in the church. Right? You can even see that back in, in chapter 3, verse 28. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ and you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Maleness and fem femaleness is, is not integral to the kingdom of God. It's not like men have a special relationship to God and women have an inferior one. All come to God, relate to God equally based on the work of Jesus Christ. And yet in this passage, in Galatians 4 and in Ephesians 1 and in Romans 8, when, when adoption is used, it is very specific that you, ladies, are sons. And that's because you are all heirs. In the Roman context, in the first century context, only a son could receive the inheritance. Only the son was appointed as an heir. Women were not. Daughters were not. Daughters did not receive the inheritance. And so Paul here actually undermines or subverts his own cultural context when he says that women, mothers, ladies, daughters, wives, are actually inheritance-receiving heirs. You are treated by God, women. You are seen by God. You are, you are considered by him with the same love, the same relationship that he gives to his son, Jesus Christ. He views you with the same love and affection that he sees Christ Jesus. Now, this is phenomenal, is it not? Because we want to ask, doesn't God already have a son? He doesn't need another son. He doesn't need a daughter. He has one. He has an heir. And yet, this is the the majesty of the gospel, the marvel of the gospel, is that God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, in living in, in eternal love, one with another, in perfect harmony, God desires to share his love with others. And so he draws you and I to himself. He draws us to himself, and he declares us, makes us, like his son. And he treats us as his own, as his real son. Now, friends, human adoption, human relationships, we can confuse this. We can conceive of a family loving a biological son in a different way than, a or than an adoptive son. And over the years, in India in particular, we heard this often, people saying, oh, I could never love a, an adopted daughter as much as my, my bio daughter. But that's because we're not thinking like God thinks. 
Because God loves you and me with the same love that he loves Jesus Christ. And even Jesus Christ declares this, John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so also have I loved you. In John 17, he speaks, Jesus, in his prayer, O Father, they may know how you love them as you have loved me. And so when you see the Father loving the Son, when you hear, say, over the baptism of Jesus, God commanding or calling out from the cloud, this is my much-loved Son with whom I am well pleased, he declares that similarly over his adopted sons. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John trembling badly. They don't know what to say. And God calls out from the cloud, this is my much-loved son. Listen to him. The father who speaks from the cloud of my much-loved son looks on Christians, looks on us and says, much-loved, beloved one. What does the father accomplish in this adoption? He makes you his son. He places you in his family, and he loves you with the same love that he loves his, his, his son Jesus with. Now, there's a, a, another question we want to ask. When did the father bring this about? When did the father adopt us? Now, you saw it there in the text, verse 4, but in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time, when the time of completion had come, God sent forth his son. Now, we know this 2,000 years ago, right? Jesus Christ was born into this world. The Father sent him. But that phrase, fullness of time, completion of time, it makes you think. This had been in process for a while, right? This did not just happen willy-nilly, accidentally, or incidentally. But actually, God had been planning this, preparing this for a very, very long time. We sometimes joke because um, in, in our adoption experiences, many, many people you know that have done it, sometimes it can take a long time. Two years, three years, four years, countless cases, and it makes you feel like, wow, I've taken a long time in this. This is, taking a, this is like my, part of my life. But God's process of adoption took even longer, right? So flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. Because in Ephesians 1, we see a little bit about God's adoptive plan. Ephesians 1, we'll pick it up in verse 3. Paul says, blessed be the God and, what do you see there? I just love it, don't you? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for what? For adoption to himself as sons. What this means, friends, is that before the foundation of the world, God set down a plan he thought through and engaged in his mind, his will, his plan, was to adopt many sons to himself. That means this was never plan B. It was never accidental. It was never incidental. It was always in God's heart or mind that you, men and women, would be called his sons. Now, there are many reasons for which someone might adopt, as we'll see. And yet God, from eternity past, before time, in his mind, he desires a very large family, a spiritual family, many sons of whom you are representative, of whom you also call upon. Ephesians 1 speaks that, that God has always been in, in the plan or in the process of adoption. Now then at some point, we get it, in this life, like where we are right now, 2000, or 2020, um, at some point, you heard the gospel. Most likely, you heard it many times. You heard the gospel. You, you recognized Jesus Christ's supremacy. You recognized maybe your own sin. You, you felt cut to the quick. You were like, I've got no other hope and no other, um, um, nothing I can do to save myself. And you turned to Jesus Christ in faith. Simple faith. You said, God, please save me in him. 
You trusted in his work on the cross. And on that day when you believed the gospel, you became something new. Your name was changed. Your identity changed. Your status changed. You became a Christian. You became a son of God on that day. And yet, recognize that centuries, no, no millennia, no, before time, God had already set his love on you. And that's why we want to revel in it. That's why we want to praise the, the glorious grace of our God in adoption. That's why we want to identify even as Christians who are adopted sons of God because we are in his family by the gospel and by the grace of, of his son. Now, question five says, why did the father adopt us? Why did the father adopt us? What was his intention? What was his motive? What was involved in this? And we've kind of circled around the question a little bit, and now we want to dive in. You know, you see, for the, for the first century, Roman or Greek, there's only one reason they adopted. There's only one reason why a landed father, a, a 50- or 60-year-old man, would take into his home a 14, a 15, an 18-year-old son. And that's because he lacked an heir. That means he had maybe a large land, a state property, maybe he was a senator, he had, a, he had quite a bit of money, and yet he had nobody to leave all of this to. And so he begins to get a little anxious, a little fretting. What have I done with my life? I'm just going to die and so I'm going to disappear? Oh, no. He would look around. He'd, he'd find a young man and say, hey, I will make you my son, and therefore my name and my prestige and my land and everything will go somewhere. And so it had to do with an heirless father appointing an heir. It didn't have to do really, with, with a fatherless child gaining a parent. We often think of adoption um, in, in our day and age as a, as a fatherless or parentless child getting a home. It's beautiful. It's great. It's, it's an, an amazing image. But it's not what they were thinking of then. And even when we think about why God would adopt us, we've already mentioned Jesus is his heir, right? Jesus is his son. He doesn't need another heir. He doesn't need a son, and so why does he adopt? Look back at Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 5. says, in love. Did you see that? In love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to what? According to the purpose or the kind intention of his will. Unto what? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You know, God does not adopt because he lacked anything in himself. He was not lonely. He was not infertile. He was not hoping to have some stipend. He wasn't hoping to extend his family uh, because of this. No, no. He wanted to, to praise his glorious grace. He wanted to bathe us in love so that we would look upon him and say, Oh, great God of salvation. What love have you lavished upon us? Oh, great Father, how holy and mighty and wonderful and loving you are. He wanted us to, in adoption, see him and know him and love him as our heavenly dad, as our heavenly father because it praises his glorious grace, because it, it puts his love on display. So what motivated God? His love, his desire for maximal glory in the display of his grace. And so I just wonder, when's the last time you praised God for being an adoptive son? When's the last time you spoke one to another at a meal and said, what, what, what was it like? How did you become an adopted son of God? I wonder how much do you love your adoptive father? Oh, I want it to, to transform our thinking and our, and our speaking and our singing so that we can say before a watching world, I am loved by the creator God. In, uh, in our former land in India, adoption was very rare, very strange. People, it was, un it was uncomfortable, it was it was not something they were familiar with. 
And one day at church, a woman came to us, an older woman. She'd become a believer um, only like five years previous from a Hindu family. And she had been watching us as a family. And she came to us and said, TJ and Karen, um, I, I don't understand what you've done in this, in your family. I don't, I don't really get it. But it reminds me of something. The way that you love and teach and instruct and provide for your girls seems similar to how God the Father loves me. It seems similar because he cares for me and he watches over me and he instructs me and he provides for me and he disciplines for me and it seems similar. Well, this woman, Fulmati, um, she'd never seen human adoption before. But the, the, the image or the metaphor of human adoption was beginning to help her understand what had God done for her or vice versa. It is phenomenal, the relationship that you and I have to God. Question six, God has made you a son and he did it before the foundation of the world. He instituted this plan and then he, he brought it about 2,000 years ago and he did it because he loves you. He did it because he wants to glorify his grace. He wants us to, to sing of his grace, his adoptive grace. But question six, what was the cost of our adoption? What was the cost of our adoption? For that, we'll look back at Galatians 4, because we'll see here that God paid a catastrophic cost in adoption. God paid a ca catastrophic cost to make you his son. Now, beloved, there, there's only one way God could adopt you and make you his son. There's only one way that he could place you in his family, and that is to redeem you to purchase you, to buy you back. And there's only one way he could buy you back. There's only one way he could purchase you. It's not with money. He had to purchase you with blood, with sacrifice, with death, and particularly the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We even see that in the book of Galatians. If you look back at Galatians 1, just see this with me. Galatians 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Look at Galatians 2, verse 20. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loves me and who delivered himself up for me. Look over at Galatians 3, verse 13. Paul says there, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Look at Galatians 4. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption. As sons. Now these phrases that I just read, even in verse 4, they're critical. They're not incidental. Jesus, born un of woman, born under the law. Th these are both absolutely necessary for you and I to be redeemed, for you and I to be purchased, for God to buy us and to make us his, his adopted sons. Jesus had to fulfill or meet certain qualifications. He had to have a certain profile, you might say. In, a, in human adoption, just, you know, lang language-wise, you have to have a profile. It's like 50 pages long, tons of interview questions, and there's all these things you have to fulfill in it. You have to, not, to, not anybody can adopt. You have to have these qualifications. Well, Jesus, to die for us, to bring us into his family, has to fulfill certain qualifications. He has to meet certain specifications, and you see it there. First, he's born of woman. Jesus, born, sent of God, born of woman, he is both fully God and, and fully man. He's 100% God, 100% man, and 
often Christians have wondered about this. It's mysterious. How can God, how can Jesus be both born of woman and born of man? How can, is, he, is he mostly God and just kind of plain as, as man? Is he mostly man and yet, and yet plain? It's confusing. Christians the world over have, have pondered this and wondered this. And yet Scripture does not move away from, uh, Scripture does, does not hedge or, or haw on what Jesus is like and who he is like. It is bold in presenting that Jesus is both God and man, that he is 100% born of Mary, 100% born of God, sent of God. He is absolutely divine and absolutely human, perfectly, holistically God in flesh, perfectly, holistically man who is divine. And yet, you know, there, there's a great deal of mystery in this over the years trying to explain it to people we get it jesus the wisdom of god who knows all things has to learn his own name has to learn how to spell jesus the master of the universe doesn't have a place to, to lay his head jesus the creator of the oceans falls asleep in the bottom of the boat because he's tired jesus the king of kings and lord of lords is crucified brutally on a cross as a nameless slave in 33 AD, just outside of Jerusalem. He's raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death, and the one who has power of death. Jesus, the King of kingdom and Lord of lords, is the Savior. And it is through his saving work on the cross, it is through what he does on the cross, being both God and man, that he brings us to God and enables God to adopt us and, and place us in his family as sons. Now you see the, the second qualification there. Jesus is born of woman. Jesus is born under the law. He lived under the Old Testament Torah. He, he lived in complete compliance to both the letter and the spirit of the law. He was absolutely, perfectly obedient to God's command and will. He's the only human, he's the only being to ever perfectly fulfill God's law. And because he is the one who perfectly fulfills God's law, when he dies on the cross, he is not dying for his own sin. He is dying for those who have sinned and rebelled and broken God's law. When he sheds his own blood, his blood actually pays. It actually purchases, buys back those who have been separated from God. He purchases, he buys you and me. He redeems us. And because he redeems us, he then adopts us as his own. And he makes us or places us in his family to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, friends, adoption is freely given. It is a gift it is not merited. It is not something you pay for. It's not something that God happens to look at some future decade of your life and say, okay, they're, they're going to be a really great person. I'm going to adopt them. No, 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 no. God, the catastrophic cost of his, the, the death of his son cleanses us and washes us and makes us new and then he puts us in his family places us in his family and says you christian are much loved beloved friends do you sense the love of god for you do you sense just how much god has done for you. He sent his son to die that you might be redeemed and placed in his family. Uh, how shall we respond to adoption? How, how do you respond to something like this? Right? How do you act or think or live given what God has done for you in adoption? I've got four things for you to think about or consider you know, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower, today, today, call on him. Look to Jesus Christ and trust in him so that you may also be an adopted son of God and receive all the benefits of the inheritance that God has for you. Today, call on him. 
If you are a Christian, if you love the Lord Jesus, would you not speak of these things to others? Don't you want other people to know about the love of God? Don't you want them to also experience what you've experienced? To be made a part of his family? To be cleansed? To be given spiritual power by having the Spirit of God within you? Don't you want them to know? You know, a great segue for this is today or tomorrow as you're talking with people. Everyone says, hey, what did you do this weekend? Oh, you know, I went to a park. I watched a football game. I went and I heard someone preach that I am an adopted son of God. A little awkward, but why not? What else are you going to talk about? Speak of it to others. Speak of it to other Christians. Speak of it to, to those who aren't Christian. Because we want everybody to know about this adopting grace of God. Number three, reflect. Reflect on what it means to be in his family. And you have in your, in your bulletins, on the back of your outline, um, nine privileges of adoption. You don't have to read all nine of them in one sitting. Take one and speak today with, with people at lunch or at dinner time or reflect on the question and, and, and talk one to another about what does it mean for me to experience this. Reflect on it. Think about it. And then talk with others about it. Because I want God to be maximally glorified in the display of his son and what God has done through Jesus. And then number four, to be a little practical, to be a little more specific, display God's generous love. Show his generous love. God has a heart of generosity, does he not? And he has showed it in adoption. And he wants you and I to also share and show that generous love. You know that old phrase, talk is cheap? Let's not just talk about his, his adopting love, his generous love. Let's actually show it. You know, not everybody is called to adopt, humanly speaking. It's a, dif it's a different kind of thing. It, it requires um, certain things. Not everybody can do it. Some of you should not adopt, humanly speaking. But some of you should. Some of you can. Foster care and the convention of foster adopt in our societies become uh, more prominent. It's difficult. It opens you up to certain challenges. They're worth it. Perhaps you can't adopt or do foster care. Perhaps you can help others to adopt or help others who are in the process of foster care because God desires us to love those who are vulnerable those who are marginalized, those who are hurting. We were vulnerable and marginalized and hurting because of sin. And yet in our society, in our world, are those who often for, for no error, for no cause in themselves, suffer. God desires for us as Christians, as his image bearers, as his sons, to extend love and generosity to those who are hurting. What will you do? brothers and sisters, for those who are hurting. We saw a video earlier for the Crisis Pregnancy Center. In our church, there are people in the process of foster care or adoption. How can you help them? I heard recently there were some members here at Plastrita Church. Their kids had all grown up and had left the home. And one day they heard a message and, and after talking, they looked around their house and said, we've got room, we've got time, we've got some finances. And so they became qualified to do foster care though they were like in their 40s. And then they had a kid come. And they started caring for the child. And they said, Lord, would you have us take more responsibility for this child? Lord, would you have us more e even adopt this child? It was a difficult decision. It, it, it's, it's hard. It's toil. And yet it's worth it. Perhaps God has not called you to, to adopt or to do foster care, even to help those who have. Perhaps God has, has called you to help those who are functionally fatherless because there are many in our church and many in our society who because of any number of abuses or challenges, their fathers are there, but they're not there. What would you do for that family in the church or in your neighborhood who's suffering and struggling because they are functionally fatherless? You're never going to replace that, but you can help. How would you help? Now, in all of these things, there is a parallel, friends. God's 
heart of generosity for the alien and for the stranger, for the vulnerable, for the orphan, causes him to love those who are orphans and vulnerable and marginalized. He actually loves them, and he, and he extends to them mercy and grace. And he calls us to express that same love. And so are you much loved by the Father? As you can say yes. If you're a Christian, are you much loved by the Father? Are you beloved as his own son? Are you in his family forever? Yes. So display that love. Show that love. It's hard. And yet it's worth it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we say those words, Father in heaven, with great understanding. For you are our heavenly dad. You are the one who looks upon us and says, Son, beloved. Oh Lord, we know that you are holy and good, that you are wise and gentle and generous. So many things where we could spend the rest of our lives wondering and, and meditating on your greatness. And yet even now, today, we just say, thank you, Father. Thank you for redeeming us from the curse. Thank you for redeeming us from our sin and from the punishment that we deserved. And thank you, Lord, for then placing us into your family and to making us your son and, and caring for us and loving us like you love Jesus. Thank you, Father. And even now, even this morning, I pray for my, my fellow brothers and sisters that they, having heard this, thinking about these things, seeing in Scripture how you have made us your son, placed into your family. Lord, I pray that you would open up their hands and open up their eyes so they might see how to help those who are hurting and suffering. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would allow us as a congregation, as many, many families who have been touched by adoptive grace, spiritual power, give us, Lord, spiritual power so that we might love others. Give us spiritual power, Lord. Help us to see and understand how we can love you and to love others, to display your adopting love. Lord, I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the beloved one. Amen.